DiscerningHearts.com presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the director of the Center for Faith and Culture and writer-in-residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a renowned biographer whose works include his own autobiography as well as books on the lives of Father Ho Lang, William Shakespeare, J.R.R. Tolkien, L.R. Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, and numerous others. He's the recipient of an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College for the Liberal Arts and has also received the Pollock Award for Christian Biography. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review and has hosted two series on Shakespeare for EWTN as well as hosting several EWTN productions on J.R.R. Tolkien. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me. It's good as always. How exciting to be able to talk about a book that, until you mentioned it, actually, I had never really been familiar with or was even aware of Pilgrim's Regress by C.S. Lewis. Yes, in many ways, it's the great neglected work by Lewis that most people don't seem to know. People know, obviously, the Chronicles of Narnia, and they know his you know, famous works of apologetics, such as Mere Christianity or Miracles. But, uh, but very few seem to know The Pilgrim's Regress, which was actually just about, except for his poetry, uh, just about his earliest published work, published in 1933. And I think a fascinating work for all sorts of reasons. It's a, a different type of format than we may be familiar with, unless you've read, of course, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, it's very much, it's a formal allegory, or, or, or what one might even say a crude allegory, where uh, Lewis, uh, you know, following Bunyan's example, presents us with a string of personified abstractions, with basically characters who really only exist to represent an idea. You know, that's something which, in the wider scheme of things, both C.S. Lewis and and uh, J.R. Tolkien spurned. They did not like formal allegory as a general rule, and it wasn't their usual m- modus operandi, as it were, the, the usual way of working. But, you know, but Tolkien wrote uh, Leaf by Niggle, uh, which is certainly an allegory along these lines. So he sort of broke his own rule, if you like, occasionally when he had something he wanted to say. And here with C.S. Lewis, you know, he's using the formal allegory as a m- means, really, of telling his own autobiographical progress to Christian conversion from his uh, childhood rejection of it. So basically, in many ways, this is uh, a work of autobiography. And one of the many reasons why this is fascinating is that for the insights it gives us into C.S. Lewis's own conversion to Christianity. So before we jump into the the heart of the book, then, for the author, for C.S. Lewis, where is he in his life? What, what year? And, and just his disposition, as you said, right during the throes of conversion. Exactly. Well, he was a convert by this time. The book was published in 1933. So he was a young man. He was born in, in 1898. So he was, he was uh, in his uh, mid-30s when this was published. He had basically embraced... Christianity back in 1930, following a long night talk with J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien basically convinced him of the truth of Christianity. So it was in September 1930 that he embraced Christianity. So this is three years later, but it's his earliest work, and it's, it's looking back, if you like, on that conversion process. 
It is a joy to read and very engaging. The style, that's, I, I don't know why I should have been surprised, but I mean, maybe because I did have the experience of the Pilgrim's Progress, that same type of format, and that was a bit more challenging. Yeah, I mean, quite frankly, I find uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress somewhat uh turgid and I think it's something to do with Bunyan's puritanism his literalism and his preachiness I mean it's primarily a work of should we say puritanical preaching about the life of the Christian you know which is not to say there's not many good things in it I also found it hard going um, whereas Lewis's first of all his writing style is so engaging and these characters although they are although they are personified abstractions representing ideas they still come alive as lively characters saying lively things that are provocative and that also reflect, should we say, intellectual history of the 20th century. And of course, you know, I, for me anyway in particular, not, not only as someone who uh, has made a study of Lewis, but as someone whose, uh, should we say, sphere of speciality has been literature, the literary history of the late 19th and 20th century. This was uh, fascinating to see what Lewis is saying about, about certain movements in art, literature, philosophy, politics, and also what he's saying about certain individuals. Because some, some of these characters in The Pilgrim's Regress are just uh, thinly veiled masks representing real people. We're going to be introduced to the central character. His name is John, and he's a young boy, but it's all through an experience of a dream. Yeah, basically, John is uh, is the Lewis figure. Uh, I say this is autobiographical. The fact that John is born in Puritania, hmm. Puritania quite clearly is a reflection of the Northern Ireland in which Lewis grew up. It's very much a Calvinistic, Puritanical understanding of Christianity, one which John is uncomfortable with, one which John senses is not really true Christianity, but something which is uh, almost uh, a parody of true Christianity. And he endeavors to escape from this, to escape from Puritania uh, in order in order to, to escape from this false vision of the landlord. The landlord is, of course, the name given in the book to God. And that in itself, by the way, is very interesting because, of course, what does that say about who God is? Well, if God's the landlord, then he owns the land and we owe him uh, for our um, living on it. And that, again, is a very, very good way of, of, of understanding our relationship to God, that we don't own our lives, we owe our lives, because our lives are given to us as a gift by someone who does actually own them, who is God himself. So I think that relationship between John and the landlord uh, is actually quite good. But of course, the way that John's elders in Puritania see the landlord and understand the landlord, John begins to perceive is not the correct way of understanding him. Mm. He has a vision of an island. He's trying to get to a, a particular island. Yeah, he has this vision uh, of, of what we might call the good, the true, and the beautiful. He doesn't really understand it, what it is. He doesn't articulate it and cannot articulate it. But he sees this as something which uh, gives meaning to life and purpose to life. There's a, there's a joy that comes with this vision which creates a desire. And it's that desire to relive that vision which drives John on from Puritania in a quest for truth. And so we have desire as a quest, but the point is there's also desire as a gift. 
And certainly in the early chapters of the book, uh, John does not see it as a gift. He sees it as something which he has to grab and take and own and claim for himself. Whereas in actual fact, as a gift, it's something ultimately we have to genuflect before and to be humble uh, in our attitude and response to it in order to possess it. We can only possess it, if you like, by giving ourselves to it rather than by claiming it as our own because it's, it's a gift. Hmm. And you alluded to in the beginning the cast of characters that he'll encounter. And right off the bat, I, I couldn't help but experience not only as a student in my own experience, but also kid, uh, students out there so often in, in their younger years, young adults, encounter Mr. Enlightenment, the modern, Freudianism, all these different characters he's meeting in the initial stages of his journey. Absolutely. And that's the whole point. This is really an, an intellectual journey, which many of us, uh, in, 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 to some degree, have actually gone on ourselves. Because he's, a, he's meeting various manifestations of the spirit of the age, of the zeitgeist. And Mr. Enlightenment, the first person he meets after he leaves Puritania, is a, the spirit of the Enlightenment, the spirit of rationalism, atheistic rationalism. Mr. Enlightenment starts to question that, that well, the landlord doesn't exist. He's a, just a figment of the imagination. Or worse than that, he's invented by people in order to dupe and uh, keep the masses in their place. So he meets this vision of the Enlightenment. But we come to see in the end how other characters who claim to be at war with Mr. Enlightenment are really only his sons and daughters and uh, and, and pro his products, his progeny, and are, are really only echoing in, in varying forms his own basic uh, cold rationalism. Mm. He eventually would be captured by the spirit of the age. And I thought this was uh, so, uh, can, we, can we say astute of Lewis in his writings because what was true then in his experience i think it's true today absolutely i mean on, on his on his journey if you like through the land of the spirit of the age he meets various people who are in fact servants of the spirit of the age even though they may not see see themselves as such so beginning with mr enlightenment then we have mr halfways who if you mm -hmm. like is the spirit of romanticism who in some ways is is a re reacting against the enlightenment but at the same stage is really a product of the Enlightenment, it's romanticism as feeling, so it's irrational. Um, and media halfways, this this girl that uh, that John falls in love with is, a, is an image of romantic love. And again, the difference between romantic love and the real thing. In other words, feeling just merely feeling erotically is not the same thing as giving ourselves sacrificially. And mm -hmm. so again, these are all lessons that John has to learn. In the end, he realised that. This romantic love, pursuing a feeling, an erotic feeling, ultimately is uh, exposed as being merely lust, and merely another manifestation of lust. So he learns all these lessons by looking at these servants of the spirit of the age, having listened to them too much, if you like, and being taken in and beguiled by them too much. He finds himself actually, if you like, slaves as they are to the same monstrous spirit of the age. Ah, uh, but he's rescued by reason. Absolutely. I mean, and again, this is this is you know personified abstraction at its best because reason is described 
you know, as a beautiful woman mm-hmm. uh, in shining armor. She's a, a virgin, but she's you know, she's also a warrior, and she defeats the uh, the spirit of the age with reason because that's what she she is. And we're told that she has two younger sisters, philosophy and theology. So we see Lewis, as he always does, insisting on the connection between fides et ratio, between faith and reason, that they can't be separated, that ultimately true reason is in harmony with true faith. And whenever someone holds up reason against faith, ultimately that rationalism is irrational. Then we encounter, of course, for us, a very beloved Mother Kirk. Yes, indeed. And, and it's rather interesting figure that's presented to us in, in the personified abstraction of Mother Kirk. Of course, Kirk is the, uh, the Scottish Gaelic word for church. So Mother Kirk is Mother Church. But she's, she's depicted as a sort of an old lady, a wizened old lady and somewhat frail in appearance, which is not perhaps not the vision of Mother Church that most of us as Catholics have. Book five, chapter two, from The Pilgrim's Regress by C.S. Lewis. Mother Kirk's Story When they were seated, the old woman told the following story. You must know that once upon a time, there were no tenants in this country at all, but the landlord used to farm it himself. There were only the animals, and the landlord used to look after them, he and his sons and daughters. Every morning they used to come down from the mountains and milk the cows and lead out the sheep to pasture. And they needed less watching, for all the animals were tamer then, and there were no fences needed. For if a wolf got in among the flocks, he would do them no harm. And one day the landlord was coming from his day's work when he looked round on the country and the beasts and saw how the crops were springing. And it came into his head that the whole thing was too good to keep to himself. So he decided to let the country to tenants. And his first tenant was a young married man. But first, the landlord made a farm in the very center of the land where the soil was the best and the air most wholesome. And that was the very spot where you are sitting now. They were to have the whole land. But that was too much for them to keep under cultivation. The landlord's idea was that they could work the farm and leave the rest as a park for the time being. But later they could divide the park up into holdings for their children. For you must know that he drew up a very different lease from the kind you have nowadays. It was a lease in perpetuity on his side, for he promised never to turn them out. But on their side... They could leave when they chose, as long as one of their sons was there to take the farm on. And then they could go up to live with him in the mountains. He thought that would be a good thing, because it would broaden the minds of his own mountain children to mix with strangers, and they thought so too. But before he put the tenants in possession, there was one thing he had to do. Up to this time, The country had been full of a certain fruit which the landlord had planted for the refreshment of himself and his children, if they were thirsty during the day as they worked down here. It was a very good fruit, and up in the mountains they say it is 
even more plentiful, but it is very strong. And only those who are mountain bred ought to eat it, for only they can digest it properly. Hitherto there was only beasts in the land. It had done them no harm for these mountain apples to be growing in every thicket, for you know that an animal will eat nothing but what is good for it. But now that there were to be men in the land, the landlord was afraid that they might do themselves injury. Yet it was not to be thought that he should dig up every sapling of that tree and make the country into a desert. So he decided that it was best to be frank with the young people. And when he found a great big apple tree growing in the very center of the farm, he said, So much the better. For if they are to learn sense, they might as well learn it from the beginning. And if they will not, there's no help for it. For if they did not find mountain apples on the farm, they would soon find them somewhere else. So he left the apple tree standing and put the man and his wife into their farm. But before he left them, he explained the whole affair to them as much as it could be explained, and warned them on no account to eat any of the apples. Then he went home. And for a time, the young man and his wife behaved very well, tending the animals and managing their farm and abstaining from the mountain apples. For all I know, they might never have done otherwise if the wife had not somehow made a new acquaintance. This new acquaintance was a landowner himself. He had been born in the mountains and was one of our landlord's own children. But he had quarreled with his father and set up on his own, and now he built up a very considerable estate in another country. His estate marches, however, with this country. And as he was a great land grabber, He has always wanted to take this bit in, and he has very nearly succeeded. I have never met any tenants of his, said John. Not tenants in chief, my dear, said the old woman, and so you didn't know them. But you may have met the Cleavers, who are tenant of Mr. Mammon, and he is the tenant of the spirit of the age, who holds directly of the enemy. I am sure the Cleavers would be very surprised, said John, to hear that they had a landlord at all. They would think this enemy, as you call him, no less a superstition than your landlord. But that is how business is managed, said Mother Kirk. The little people do not know the big people to whom they belong. The big people do not intend that they should. No important transference of property could be carried out if all the small people at the bottom knew what was really happening. But this is not a part of my story. As I was saying, the enemy got to know the farmer's wife. And however he did it, or whatever he said to her, it wasn't long before he persuaded her that the one thing she needed was a nice mountain apple. And she took one and ate it. And then, you know how it is with husbands, she made the farmer come round to her mind, and at the moment he put his hand and plucked the fruit, 
there was an earthquake, and the country cracked open all the way across from north to south. And ever since, instead of the farm, there has been this gorge, which country people call the Grand Canyon. But in my language, its name is Pecatum Adehi. Lewis's depiction of Mother Kirk is pretty much ecclesiologically solid and sound, that she is basically the only way by which John or anyone else can find the desire or find their heart's desire is by submitting themselves to Mother Kirk, to Mother Church. And of course, at first he's unwilling to do that, but uh, eventually, of course, has to in order to reach his heart's desire, which is Christian conversion and an understanding of God. And that's what's so beautiful about this book, Pilgrim's Regress by C.S. Lewis, because it this is we're just beginning the journey with John in this travel that's going to take him very much ultimately into an encounter which we would have in that interior experience. Yeah, absolutely. What he does, of course, is he externalizes those internal experiences, both the intellectual experiences, also the emotional experiences. And indeed, the, the sort of the, the map that he presents to us, the, the via media, the, the, the middle path is the path of truth and ultimately the path of virtue because he meets Mr. Virtue. We need, need to remember that. And, and Mr. Virtue, in some ways, is the pagan understanding of virtue, virtue as it would, would have been understood by Socrates or Plato or Aristotle, that the fact virtue itself leads to, to God. And of course, virtue does not leave the path. And to the north of the path, we have the various heresies connected to what we might call cold reason, the heresies of the head. And to the south of the path, the heresies that are connected to what we might call warm feeling, the the errors or heresies of the heart. And again, the via media, the straight path of virtue, steers a true path between the errors of feeling reason between the head and the heart, the ultimate, the synthesis of head and heart uh, is in the truth of virtue, which is in conformity with reason and in conformity with faith. What I found fascinating in this is how the, the place of history is found in the journey, that time of almost that reflection and looking backwards. It's an important element I think we need to be aware of in our own lives. Absolutely. If meeting Mr. History or Father History is a very important encounter for John because it's here that he, he actually gets the context, the, if you like, the, the map by which he understands where he is. And that's that, the thing we often forget, that without history, and let's not forget here, by the way, that the world in which we live, the so-called progressive tendency, which is in the ascendant, underlying philosophy behind the core curriculum in education, all sorts of other political and, and, and social agenda, is a, a progressive agenda which treats the past with contempt, that the past is just a place of prejudice. The future is something which is bright and clear and wonderful. The past is something to be spurned and our back turned on, which is the actual complete opposite uh, of, of, of uh, the way things we should see things because the future um, outside of the mind of God does not exist to human beings. We don't know what it is, whereas the past is all that we have. And where we are now as individuals or as a society is a direct consequence of where we have been. 
In other words, in other words, it's our path. And if we do not understand the path by which we've trod, we are literally going to be lost. We don't know where we've come from. Therefore, how can we know where we're going? And so uh, this, if you like, this rootless lack of history, which we have in the progressive mentality, leads to us being completely disoriented and not knowing where we fit in the scheme of things. And so John's meeting of Father History is crucial. He's getting his bearings to actually pointing him in the right direction, which, of course, is ultimately towards Mother Kirk. One of my favorite lines, there's so many in here, it'd be, it's almost a Sophie's choice trying to pick insights that John would have, but it's in a conversation that he asks wisdom at this point, right after this encounter with Father History. He, he says to him, I am afraid that the things that the landlord really intends for me may be utterly unlike the things he has taught me to desire. Right, precisely. I mean, the, the other thing that we, we're seeing, wisdom, of course, that we see is on this side of the Great Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon, of course, is the fissure caused in the midst of the landscape by the fall. It's the, it's the, it's the break in the fall that pre prevents us from getting to the fullness of truth. So wisdom is this side of that Grand Canyon. So this is, if you like, up to a point, this is worldly wisdom. This is, if you, at best, it's a pagan wisdom. At worst, it's merely a wisdom which can only grapple in the dark with the darkness of, of, of the zeitgeist and everything else. So uh, John, in, the, in, in his encounter of wisdom, it's not the fullness of wisdom. It's mm -hmm. not the fullness of truth. It's, which is why wisdom says that, that basically that I don't even know that what I'm being wise about is ultimately what I'm supposed to be being wise about because he's in the dark. He's in the dark because he's not subject and hasn't subjected himself to Mother Kirk, to Mother Church. And it's through uh, our acceptance of the truths taught by Mother Church that wisdom itself becomes truly enlightened. Not the enlightenment of the enlightenment, but the true, true enlightenment that comes through the correlation of reason on the one hand and revelation, what God has revealed to us through the Church. Would you say, Joseph, then, that the regress in this pilgrim's regress is... It's almost as though you have to unlearn all the things you thought you had learned. Exactly. That basically, a, a conversion literally does turn us on our heads. I mean, Chesterton famously said that we have to stand on our heads in order to see things clearly. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes when we stand on our heads, we see things clearly for the first time in such a way that we realize we're actually standing the right way up and we're not standing on our heads at all and that we've been standing on our heads for the entirety of our lives prior to that. This sort of very uh, powerful image of what conversion actually is. So, of course, once you do that, once you're now seeing things the right way around, then you do have to unlearn uh, everything that, that you've taken for granted prior to that conversion. So the, the regress, as you like, uh, if you like, is, is, is um, John unlearning the nonsense and coming to the truth. Again, I'll, I'll just go back and ask the question, it, it, why has Pilgrim's Regress not been lifted up higher in the canon of the C.S. Lewis works? Just because there is such a clarity, and, and yet it's still a, a tremendously engaging story. It's so well written. And yet there, it's, I, what do I want to say, easier to grasp as far as the message that it's trying to convey. 
I think so too, and I'm very grateful and gratified by the fact that you agree with me. Uh, you know, I've on several occasions uh, in uh, book discussion groups and, and elsewhere, and, and indeed in the classroom, I've resurrected the Pilgrim's Regress and presented it as a major work of Lewis's that's unjustly neglected. And it really is something of a mystery to me why it's probably, uh, you know, uh, apart from maybe some works of literary criticism in his poetry, it's probably the work of his which is least read by anybody. And I think that's an injustice. And that's why I've actually selected it together, which is obviously something we've, we've discussed, but we've selected, you know, which text to, to include in, uh, in the latest group uh, of discussions for, for, for discerning hearts. And, you know, we could have, cho- of course, have chosen just about any work by C.S. Lewis, and it would have been one wonderful to discuss. But the reason that we've, dis- that we've uh, chosen this one, at least in part, is because it is a neglected gem in C.S. Lewis's crown, which I think more people need to know about. Do you have to be older to read it and to appreciate it? I mean, is it some something that you kind of have to have encountered Father History before you really can grasp the the message that Lewis is conveying? Well, I think not. I think in the sense that the character C.S. Lewis's use of personified abstractions are actually very helpful. You know, the connection between reason, philosophy, and theology, which he makes merely by making philosophy and theology the younger sisters of reason, and the fact that reason slays the spirit of the age. I mean, these are very powerful images, which, if you like, cannot really be be, be um, expressed more clearly than in the form in which Lewis does it in this work. What I would say, however, is there are other characters that it does require element of knowledge of 20th century intellectual and, uh, and literary history to really get fullness of. But I don't think that detracts from the enjoyment of the work or, or what we can get from it. But, but to give you some examples um, of, uh, of, of characters that, uh, that you, may not, you may not understand, it would actually be useful to have something of a gloss for. Mm-hmm. And it's my hope, actually, that, that there will be a, an edition of the Pilgrim's Regress published at some stage with, with a proper gloss. But to give you some ideas, characters such as Gus Halfways, um, who... Uh, it has rejected, uh, is at war with his father, Mr. Halfways. Well, Mr. Halfways is the spirit of romanticism, 19th century romanticism. Gus Halfways is the spirit of 20th century modernism and futurism and cynicism. So the modernist poetry and novels of, in fact, of the time that Lewis is writing, the 1920s and 1930s, the clevers are people such as the Bloomsbury Group, who he's parodying and satirizing here. Victoriana is Edith Sitwell, uh, and that sort of group of modern poets. The reference to the Aspidistra is is a reference to, should we say, the petty bourgeois middle class that George Orwell would actually lampoon about three years later when he published Keep the Aspidistra Flying. So the reference to the Aspidistra, all of these things. And for me, the, the most exciting is the discovery of Roy Campbell, a great mm-hmm. favorite of mine, a convert poet from Catholicism, who's the bearded singer who's sort of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the savage with no clothes on, basically, with a loincloth. I mean, this is C.S. Lewis having great fun lampooning and satirizing people that, that are his own contemporaries. So for, for someone that, that, that sort of studied 20th century literary history, this is itself fascinating, but will not be, of course, understood by the average reader. But I don't think that necessarily detracts 
from the, the truths that emerge from the book. I think you don't need to know those facts in order to enjoy the program's regress. I think if you do know those facts, it makes it even more enjoyable. Well, how great fun, because well, I think it's absolutely true. I didn't know that when I read it, and I encountered those characters, and I kind of could kind of personify, I could kind of see elements in the culture. But now that you've given me those names, now I want to go back and read it again. Exactly. I mean, and that's why it really doesn't need, it needs someone, the C.S. Lewis estate needs to, to get someone uh, appropriately qualified to go through and, and, and do a, a thorough annotation of it so that we can really enjoy that aspect of it, which I don't think is necessary to the enjoyment of the work, but it certainly adds to the enjoyment of it once we know it. Another example, by the way, on this, because is Neo Angular, the character of Neo Angular and Mr. Broad are... T- two aspects of the Anglican Church, Neo-Angular, the Anglo-Catholics, and Mr. Broad is the Broad Church, or the, should we say, the modernist, Anglican modernists that Lewis despised. And that that sort of modernism led, of course, to the collapse of of Anglican orthodoxy. But Neo-Angular is also a parody and a satire on T.S. Eliot, someone Mm. that, that, that certainly in 1933 Lewis did not like T.S. Eliot, and I think Lewis was, was wrong not to like T.S. Eliot. But the point is that but Lewis's dislike for Eliot is it comes forth in the character of Neo Angular. And this is for me is is fascinating. It was no one spared. I think maybe Tolkien was he the only one who was spared? <laughs> well, of course, uh, I, that's that's a good point, actually. No, I, I um I don't think Tolkien Tolkien deserves to um to be uh to be mentioned here because of course it was Tolkien's influence three years earlier that led Lewis to uh, to convert to Christianity, but I'm not aware. Maybe I have to go back and read it more closely. Of any sort of, uh, should we say, guarded allusion to to Tolkien in the in the work. Of course, uh, he's more really dealing with, uh, should we say, enemies rather than friends, which might explain that. Well, let's hope that a seed has been planted, or at least a dream inspired in the hearts of uh, publishers out there in the Lewis estate that. Once again, this can become something that is brought forward because I think there is a clear assist that it could help in the in the new evangelization, especially for those who are wanting to deepen their own conversion, knowing that Lewis kind of traveled that journey right here in front of us in the form of John. Exactly. I think in, in some ways, The Pilgrim's Regress is one of the most powerful conversion stories ever written. And we, we, know, we, th- we, we think about, in Lewis's case, we might think about Surprised by Joy, uh, which is, is, of course, itself a, a, a wonderful work. And we think about, you know, Numa's Apologia Pro Vita Sua and, and, and uh, Chesterton's autobiography and then various other works of, uh, uh, of conversion stories that, as told, the great St. Augustine's Confessions, of course. But The Pilgrim's Regress, really, I think, you know, is really of the same sort. It's set as a, as a formal allegory, but it's really C.S. Lewis's own progress from atheism and enslavement to the spirit of the age to enlightenment, true enlightenment, as uh, an understanding of the unity of faith and reason to be found in Orthodox Christianity. And that intellectual process, that intellectual progress is mapped out beautifully and brilliantly in this book. And I think, you know, it it should be read by everybody and certainly should be read by everybody that loves C.S. Lewis, because if you've read everything and you haven't read this, it's a sin of omission, quite frankly, that needs rectifying. Well, let's rectify that today. Joseph Pierce, thank you so very much. My pleasure as always, Chris. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with 
hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.